0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and of course I'm Al Warren and if I could speak right you'd know that. <laughs> and mister Mr Martinos in the back, have you, you haven't blown up any anything today, have you?
1: Not today. I'm, I'm working on it, though.
0: Does your wife locked you down. Are you you're, yes. in qu- you're in quarantine in the quarantine? Yes, double quarantine. Double quarantine. Yeah, just put you in the basement. No, no, not even a cat. No. Oh, no, no! Almost blew up the house yesterday. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you it was know. close. I guess. Oh, you see, I, I I I was thinking about this last night. I was thinking it was probably your plan. At uh, at at so that you didn't have to cook dinner. Yes. Right. So then, yes. she's just, not only are you just not that good at a cook, but you're going to blow up the place mm. with yes. your pressure cooker, and she's going to have to get dinner anyway, plus clean up the mess. That's right. Yes. McDonald's or something. Yes. Yeah. So so <laughs> so now you've probably got her just picking up stuff on the way home from her work.
1: That's right. Yeah, you, you you know my whole plan now.
0: <laughs> I see it now. Boy, I could write a book <laughs> if it, if I, yeah. Um, anyway, um, so now uh, speaking of writing a book. Now this uh, we've got a man today that has written a ton of books. Um, wow, uh, almost as much as the lady yesterday. Yeah, almost. But that's crazy. Uh, it says more than eighty books. Uh, so it looks like it covers a lot of territory, so let's uh, bring him in and talk about this. Um, welcome to the show, Mr. Caleb Purtle III. Hi,
2: I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, hopefully we'll say that at the end. <laughs> you never know. Um, so, so Caleb, you've written a lot of books. Wh- where did writing start for you then?
2: Well, Alan, just, as soon as I realized... I wasn't smart enough to dig ditches for a living. I decided to become a writer. Basically, that's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, I went to uh, uh, college at the University of Texas and majored in journalism. Jumped into newspaper business, small newspapers, large newspapers. Uh, wound up with magazines, and uh, uh, eventually, I worked for a publishing company for twenty-five years, and. In the last 10 years, I uh, have quit writing nonfiction, and basically now I write fiction.
0: Well, that's an interesting jump. I, I guess, so first of all, you've never, you never really had a fear of writing then, if you jumped right in the papers and were just going at her. You never had a fear of not being, you know, of, of writing incorrectly or having people chastise you if you didn't do a good article?
2: Well, you know, the only way, that you can improve in my business is to make mistakes and have some editor throw a, a story back in your face and say, if you can't do better than this, you need to find another job. You start working real hard to do better than this. And uh, you, you, you know, as, a, as, as I started out in small town newspapers, the editors really didn't care what you wrote as long as you could fill up space between the advertising. When you got to bigger newspapers, they took it real serious. And in my whole life, I've always taken it really, really serious. Because I've read. And if I'm not writing, I'm reading. And uh, every time I read something new, I think, there's an idea I've never tried before. Let me see if it'll work in my next book. Sometimes it does. Sometimes I don't have the touch that that author had but you never know until you try.
1: Hmm. Do you feel your work as a journalist, uh, deadlines and such, do you feel that's made you a more efficient writer of fiction?
2: I I think it did because it made me more of a uh, regimented writer. Because in the newspaper business, especially uh, when I worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, which at that time was the largest daily in Texas, we had four deadlines a day you didn't miss a deadline. Our final deadline was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and a lot of times I was out on a traffic fatality or a homicide, and I was digging up notes, and at 2 o'clock I was on the telephone dictating my story off the top of the head. And after you do that for a while, you learn what deadlines are all about. And so then you start putting your own deadline on yourself, and then when you write, like, as I do now, uh, and you're your own boss, you're writing for the toughest boss you've ever worked for in your life. There are no excuses, no sickness. When a book is due, that final page better be coming out of the machine.
0: <laughs> do, do you find yourself uh, a very structured writer then? Like, can you sit down and, and plan this? Can you kind of go, well... Uh, You know, I've got from 11 to 5 today, there's nobody home, I'm by myself, so I can just sit down and write. And and are you able to do that, just on the whim, or do you have to be in a certain mood?
2: No, you're never in a certain mood. Uh, Like I said, I'm very regimented. I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. We have a website that we work to uh, promote other authors' books around the country. So I'm up at 5 o'clock. I load the website. Then I promote all the books on the website that day, as well as my own books on all the social media. Uh, then I take a break. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I sit down and write. Every day at 2 o'clock, I sit down and write. Uh, there, there's no and, buts, or about it. You have a time. The first words start coming out of your word machine. And, and, and I found that the great way to do it, as I, I write three hours. At the end of the day, I write my last sentence, but I leave an incomplete sentence. So the next day when I sit down, I complete that sentence. And by the time I complete that sentence, I'm back into the story and I can keep writing.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That's, uh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that one before. That's a good idea. You know, um, what, what made you go from, let's say you were doing all nonfiction and now you've gone into fiction. Was there a particular reason that you did that or is it just, you know, that you got tired of nonfiction?
2: Well, uh, because of the jobs that I had, uh, I handled publicity for the state of Texas for their uh, travel department. I became the first travel editor at Southern Living Magazine and was there for 10 years. So I wrote a lot of travel books. And then when I went went to the publishing company, we did a lot of historical books. And, uh, you know, after doing that for a while, you start to get the itch. I wonder if I could take what I've learned and turn it into fiction. And when I retired, I said, this is a perfect opportunity. Now I don't have their deadlines. I have my deadlines. I'm not writing their books. I can write my own books. I love thrillers. I love history. I love mysteries. So I sat down and started writing historical thrillers and historical mysteries. Uh, I may live in the present, but I prefer the past. It's just a lot more glamorous.
0: Yeah, it's it's certainly got a lot more personality, I think. uh, Did you take actual historical situations like real-life situations or things that are really happening and then put your story in that itself?
2: Well, you know, I'm a firm believer that fiction is packed with reality. It's packed with truths. There is much nonfiction. Uh, in fiction, as there is just pure fiction. Because as you go through life, you build up all of these experiences and all these things you've seen and been a part of and experienced them, and then you lock them away in that strange little computer we call a brain. And every once in a while you get to the point in a story and all of a sudden something that happened to you 25 years ago just jumps out on the page, and, and it's there before you realize it, and you read it and thank the good Lord that you had that experience because it works just the way on fiction that it did in nonfiction.
0: Well, yeah, I find one difference now. So when you write nonfiction, you, again, like you said, it's, it's their story. So the characters, you're really, um, you're not creating them. You're sort of explaining them. You're learning about them and you're learning about what they did and you're, you're telling a story on what or how they did, you know, it's true crime or if it's just a biography or whatever, whatever you're doing, right? So you you don't really create that. But in fiction now, you, you're you creating the characters you're using. I, and I guess you would take some of that from yourself and maybe from others around you. Um, I'm not sure. So maybe explain your process on, on developing and creating characters.
2: Well, what I always do, and, and before I – put the first word on, on a piece of paper, I really get to know my character. I know the, everything there is to know about that character. That character comes to life. I know what he likes for breakfast. I know what he likes to drive. I know where he likes to go and when he likes to go. Uh, and, and until he just becomes a living, breathing character. And some characters suddenly exist, total, and you don't even expect it. Uh, for example, oh, a few years ago, uh, I was roaming the channels at night. I always roam between the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, National Geographic. You never know what wonderful documentaries you're going to run across. And I ran across a documentary in the 1930s. The United States government was conducting a lot of behavioral experiments, trying to reprogram and remap a human's brain, really using hallucinatory drugs, electrical shock treatments. They wanted to be able to erase that person's mind so they could put their thoughts in his mind and he could do things that that he couldn't do otherwise. They would erase his mind. They would erase his memories. And I didn't know this actually happened. They took volunteers. They took people from the army, they took people from prisons, they took people from insane asylums. And I'm sitting there totally enthralled, and I heard this voice beside me just as clearly as I hear your voice. And he said, that happened to me. And I asked, why did it happen to you? And he said, they believed if they could erase my mind, they could erase my fears. And a man who is not afraid to die is not afraid to do anything he's supposed to do, even if it's an impossible thing to do. And that character just came to life that night. And I've written a uh, four-book series now based upon uh, the exploits uh, back in the late 1930s, just prior to World War II, on Ambrose Lincoln. So I have uh, four historical thrillers based on his character, the man who lost his mind.
1: So you can actually hear your characters. You have an inner monologue
2: when you're, when oh, you're writing I, these. You, you know, and, and I speak at a lot of uh, a lot of co- uh, writers' conferences, and, and, and I mention that. And, and if you're not a writer, hmm. you think I'm crazy. <laughs> and you're probably right. But if you are a writer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. Our characters... They talk to us. In fact, when I'm sitting down writing a scene, I'm not making it up. I'm following my characters, and I'm watching what they do, and I'm listening to what they say, and then I put it on paper. In fact, I had a writer here a while back write and said, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm in the middle of a book, and I've got a writer's block, and and I can't make it go. I've worked for weeks, and it won't go any further. And I said... Probably what you're trying to do is you have a story, and you're trying to force your characters to go there, and your characters don't want to go there because your characters have a better story. I said, just relax, sit down, and follow your characters. A week later, I got an email back that said, you're right, I'm off and running. Don't ever try to force your characters to do something they don't want to do.
0: That's good advice. I, so how do you describe your um, relationship with your characters then? And, and I ask that uh, because a lot of the nonfiction writers we talk to, or fiction writers I should say, um, quite often will tell me they're like their families, they're like their children. I hear all these different terms used uh, when people are trying to explain their, their characters. What's your relationship?
2: Well, you know, you, you get real close to your characters. And uh, if, if you'll notice... The real reason that most authors write a series of books. For example, I've got my Ambrose Lincoln series. I've got my Roland Sands series. I've got my Eudora Durant series. And the reason you write series is that you like your characters so well, you don't want to say goodbye. So instead of putting a period, closing the the machine, closing the book and saying, that's it. About a week later, you think, well, I wonder what old Ambrose is up to now. And you sit down and, and start the next book in the series.
0: Hmm. Do you? And so when you go through each, each uh, character and you're going through a series and you're writing a book and you say you see uh, some of the events, like you're seeing the actual event happening that you're writing the uh-huh. scene, do you actually play it out completely? Do you actually –
2: Do that even live with your own physical body? No, I I would never do that. Like I say, I sit there and watch what they do, and as they do it, I'm writing it down. As they're talking, I'm writing dialogue. Uh, it's, it's, It's almost like you've got this little bitty television set sitting right in front of your eyes, and you're watching all the scenes, the action. You're hearing all the dialogue. As, as it comes together now once it's all on paper you will certainly go back and start rearranging and realize, uh, rewriting uh, threads of dialogue that don't work nearly as well as you thought they did or expanding on the dialogue and expanding on the scene but uh, and 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 it's just not your your primary characters that you get involved with in fact in uh, one of the ambrose lincoln books uh, i had a character that I just needed for one scene. He didn't even have a name. But it was that scene where Ambrose is trying to escape. He's running up these stairs in a walk up hotel. He runs into a room and there's this little man sitting there and it's his room and he didn't know what's happening and he's scared to death and, and, and as as they're talking the door bursts open, and the bad guy comes in and ambrose kills him i'm thinking okay i needed that character it's kind of like a a day character in in a movie script you bring him in you do the scene you pay him off you leave him you never listen to him or hear from him again george never left the next thing i knew he was in another scene he was in so many scenes i had to go ahead and give him a name george giddings and uh Little did I know at the time, but in the very climactic scene when the critical gunfight happened and Lincoln is laying there wounded and no way to reach his gun, it's little George Giddings that fires the fatal shot to save the day. Wow. I had no idea George was going to play that kind of role. So you just, you just ride him in, and if he doesn't leave, you know, there's something important somewhere down the line, so you just let him you let him go and and see what happens.
1: When you're watching the story in your mind, do you do you feel like it's like a dream or a daydream? I know when sometimes when I write, I, I find that things kind of change. Like it'll be day and then it'll just be night all of a sudden. Do you, do you have continuity problems like that that have to be fixed later or um, do you are you able to kind of stay in the moment as you're writing the
2: story? You know, I'm, I'm pretty much able to stay with what I'm doing until I get through and the rewrite starts. It's kind of like uh, uh, all good writers really take after James Michener. James Michener said, I'm not a very good writer, but I'm a real good rewriter. Mm. And that's where you really come in and add the final touches and the flourishes and, and, and the impact statement, uh, statements and the impact scenes that, that really make a book work.
0: Mm. You know, when, when someone writes nonfiction or you, if you're writing in an article or paper, um, a lot of times there's a, um, a meaning besides the event that happened. Like if you're covering a murder or something, um, there, there's maybe a point to it. Um, so when you're writing fiction do you do the same and I, and I mean that is there under underneath the story itself uh, the drama or the, whatever the story is about is there some sort of subtext or some sort of meaning or something that you hope people get out of that
2: yeah there's always an underlying current that works its way through through, through a story and and more more likely it works its way through through the character and the roles and the parts he has to play. And uh, uh, because in all good fiction, even a character that's on his fourth book, he's got to keep changing. You don't want the same old character. He's got certain uh, personalities and certain complexities that stays true. But all of a sudden, you may see really warm-hearted when you thought he had a heart made of ice. So there's always the way to uh, uh, change your characters, and by changing your characters, you change that underlying story. And uh, and so often, the story that's on paper is really not the story that you want to tell, especially if your book has something to do with, with social issues. Uh, and, and all good fiction has something to do with social issues, or at least those issues at the time that people may not have realized played such a major role in their lives, but looking back, they realized they did. Does
0: does that sort of um, put you more on guard these days? Uh, Do you feel like you have to be a little bit more concerned about how you word things or
2: how you present them in such a
0: sensitive generation now?
2: You know... Probably that's a good reason to write historical fiction because you don't have to worry so much about that because those things that people are sensitive about now, they were also sensitive about in the 1930s or the 1870s. They just expressed it in an entirely different way. And sometimes learning how social issues were met and evolved and solved in 1897, really kind of gives you a key to how you need to act in 2022.
0: Oh, so when you write these series of books, do you sort of have this outlined? Like you say, you're pretty structured. So do you, have it, do you know how it's going to end, so to speak, maybe at the end of each book or even the end of the series, and you're writing your way to that point, or is it more as it happens?
2: Well, when I first started, Alan, uh, I would write my first paragraph of a book and my last paragraph at the same time, working on the philosophy that, that maybe this is like a road map. If you know where you're leaving and you know where you're going to, then you can find a way to get there. But invariably, by the time I got to the ending, it was so different. I had to rewrite the ending, which meant I had to go back and rewrite the beginning. So now I just sat down, I'm 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 sure you've heard the, the phrase many times. I'm more of a pantser. I just write by the seat of the pants. I write the first sentence in a book and see where it takes me. And uh, uh I know the book that uh here a while back I wrote uh, it's a historical fiction, but set back during the uh uh, Great Depression. Uh, it was called "Bad, Bad Side of a Wicked Moon," and all of a sudden, I I, I came in uh, to, to to my wife, and I was all excited. She could see that I was excited, and she said, "What, what what's, what's the matter?" I said, "I've just reached page two hundred and fifty-six, and I know who the bad guy is." <laughs> Up till that time, we had a thread of of crime working its way through the book, but I had no idea who the killer was. And on page 256, I finally figured it out. Usually, I figure it out when my main character tells me.
0: Hmm. Do, do you ever take people that you don't like and use them in your in your books and make them the bad guy or have them killed?
2: <laughs> Always. Always. <laughs> And sometimes I even use their real names. Oh. But but if you read my books, if you find somebody that's really killed and in a strange and heinous manner, you might want to think back, is that me? Because <laughs> it very well could be.
0: Well, it, 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 I, the I, the we didn't you know each
2: other. It's the way you can give back <laughs> to people and still remain friends.
0: Wow. That's great. That's um I, I I'll remember that newest series. Looks like you just put out is the Boomtown Saga three book it's series. The
2: Boomtown Saga.
0: Yeah, uh, tell us tell us a little bit about that story. Like what what is this?
2: Well, the Boomtown Saga uh, is back during the early days of the Great Depression. It's reading it written, uh, written about a uh, fictional East Texas town that was dying on the vine. Businesses were going out of business. People were leaving. There was a drought. The stores were were all shuttering their windows and and closing their door, and people were just dying on the vine. And into town comes a uh, con man with a doodlebug machine. And he, by hook or crook or good fortune, finds oil. And, and and all of a sudden this little town is drawn back to life because oil has broken the back on the Great Depression. But with oil there becomes money, and with money there's greed and without and with greed there's there's murder. So you, you, you fictionalize it. But but it's basically I'm writing about what I know best. I was born and raised in Kilgore in East Texas, which in 1931, a con man came into town. Uh, He sold shares for for, for $25. Uh, He raised money, and he actually drilled an oil well. And then to raise money to, to drill that first oil well, he would go to Dallas and pick up a copy of the Dallas Morning News and read the obituary column. And, and and in the obituary columns, he would find the richest new widows, and he would go pay his respects to the widows. And he was quoted as saying, and this is in a newspaper article, every woman has a certain place on her neck that when I kiss it, she starts writing checks. So he financed uh, the Kilgore boom with, with the checks from, from, from the widows in Dallas and from those... Little shares that he sold, and 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 all of a sudden, Kilgore became one of the biggest boom towns in America. Uh, East Texas oil field was the largest oil field uh, ever discovered, and uh, and so as as I grew up in the midst of this, on the cusp of this, that this great oil boom, I grew up listening to stories about about the people, the places, the things, the crooks, the criminals. They even had to send in the, uh, the Texas Rangers to get things under control because it became such a wicked and unruly boomtown. But I had all these stories that had been tucked away in my brain for, for 30 or 40 years, and all of a sudden I thought, you know, I've got the best background of any story that I've ever had. The time has probably come to tell it. There's been enough funerals. So that's when I became my boomtown or when I started writing my Boomtown series.
0: Hmm. I, I, it must take quite a bit of, um, like you say you know it, but it must take quite a bit of research to kind of make sure details are correct. Like if you're writing in a time period, like the 30s, in a, in a certain area, you have to make sure that the uh, the slang of the time is right, the way people use their words, the way they dress, the way they um, behave, their habits, the the customs, um, as well as what's going on. Like when you talk about, you know, just the area and the town. So that, that, how long does that take you to research something
2: like this out? It takes quite a bit of time because I do as much or more research on fiction as I do on nonfiction because you're exactly right. If you make a mistake writing nonfiction and somebody realizes it, you've suddenly lost all credibility. So you have to make sure the clothes are right, the weapons are right. And the first draft of my first Ambrose Lincoln book, uh, set in 1939, I sent it to my editor and the editor emailed back and said, you better check his weapon. You've got him carrying a Glock and they didn't invent the Glock till 1952. So I immediately went back and said, Okay, what kind of weapons did the military use in the 1920s? So you really have to be accurate. And, and in that Ambrose Lincoln series, and in uh, one of the books uh, that was the, the Night of Broken Glass, uh, I had the train coming into Polway, uh, Poland, to pick up the Jews to carry to the death camps. Now, I researched and researched until I found the actual name of the company who built the trains that actually went to Polway, Poland, and picked up the Jews for the death camps. And I used it in the book. Now, nobody else will ever realize that that's probably the truth, but I know. And as long as I know, I can feel good about it.
0: Well, yeah, you never
2: know. There's always that one person. <laughs> there's always one historian out there that's just looking for mistakes. Yeah, and God bless them. We need to find out where the mistakes are and change them.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, but there's always I uh, always find there's one or two out there that all of a sudden will email you and tell you something that you didn't know. And uh, but I think it's really important. It's super important. How long does it take you then to put together like this new series of three books that you just released? How long did that take to actually get out? I've spent probably,
2: once I start, uh, I will get a book out in, in three months. Right now, I'm trying to get at least two books and mostly three books out a year. In, in fact, you, as, as I said, I've talked to a lot of writers groups, and a lot of people want to be writers, and, and they want to write books, but the thought of putting together a 300 book, page book is kind of a daunting uh, experience that lays in front of them. They're they're almost afraid to start. And then I tell them the formula is real simple. Just write three pages a day. Even if you're on a roll, stop at the end of three pages and write three pages every day during the week. Take Saturday and Sunday off, but write just three pages a day. It only takes 45 minutes or an hour to write three good pages a day. And at the end of six months, you'll have a book. Now, six months is going to come. You can either have a book or not have a book, but six months will be here. So you might as well have one ready for a publisher.
0: What do you you think of today's publishing world um, with you know now the the big guy amazon out there and and a lot of people just self publish and it's just there's just like a, a million titles a day coming out so uh, but, but what do you think in general of the way people are publishing now
2: well when, when the digital revolution hit nobody knew what to do with it and that includes the big five publishers in new york uh, they're almost afraid to do anything beyond what they're doing it is the reason they're primarily just sticking to their authors that they know sell well. And when their authors die, they still put the names on the front and hire other people to write the stories. But the big problem that uh, the digital revolution caused is, as you said, anybody can throw out a book. And there's for every good book that's in the marketplace for every book written by an author who really works hard to hone his craft and develop the best story he can possibly develop, you'll have a hundred pieces of schlock that's thrown out there. So, uh, but, but, but it, it almost, the ship almost writes itself because people who write schlock all of a sudden realizes their books hidden selling on Amazon. And so they don't write anymore. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's one of those, uh, a whole new industrial revolution as far as uh, as, as, as the book world is concerned. And, uh, you know, you just keep sticking with it. And, and as a result, there are a lot of real good small publishers that really care about authors and really care about stories and really care about books. That are legitimate traditional authors. They don't just aren't as big as the boys in New York, but you can still find real good, solid, small publishers to work with, and they they will they will make sure that that you don't stop until you have a book worth publishing, and more important, a book worth reading.
0: What do you think the biggest uh, mistake? Um, some of the writers are making them. They think they're just not getting themselves edited they're not but like, wh- where's the biggest problem? The biggest
2: problem is their books look homemade and their books read homemade. Uh, they've never really studied how a book is put together. Uh, they may have read a lot of romances so they think I can write a romance. you get a man and a woman and, and, and you, you work the formula, and all of a sudden you have a book, and they don't realize all the little nuances that take place within a book uh, that make it happen. Uh, for example, one, one of the great books out there on, on whether you're writing film scripts or whether you're writing books is called Save the Cat, written by a screenwriter, who really narrows it down, this is... In the first 15 pages, this has to happen. In the next 30 pages, this has to happen. On page 50, you introduce your subplot. And he leads you right through it to the point that 15 pages before the end, and I'm talking about a script, it'd be about uh, 45 pages before the end in a novel, all is lost. You read it and you think there's not any hope regardless of what the genre is. In historical fiction, they're not going to be able to cross the, the raging river. And in and, and a romance, the, the hero has run off and she'll never be able to find him, And in and, and a thriller, the bad guy has the good guy and, and, and a cell and chains, and he's locked away and can't get out. Everything, all is lost. And it's those last 45 to 50 pages. Of, of a novel that make it all worthwhile. In fact, Linda and I can go to a movie or watch a movie on television, and all of a sudden she'll look at me and say, well, we're 15 minutes from the end because all is lost. <laughs> so after a while, you just have to learn how the formula of, of a good, solid story is put together and, and follow that story and believe in that formula because it works every time.
1: Well, speaking of scripts, I'm uh, just curious. Uh, you've written for uh, you've written screenplays, and I was just wondering um, how you got into uh, writing for uh, movies and television.
2: Well, uh, I had a real good friend who was in the film business, uh, Frank Q. Dobbs. Uh, he and I had done a lot of industrial scripts together for clients he had with his Houston Film Company. And he always wanted to write and be a part of feature films. So he went to Los Angeles and and then started writing. And and he had really cut his teeth on the old Gunsmoke series, writing scripts for it. So he became the resident Western authority in in Hollywood. And then, for for example, he read that uh, uh, CBS was wanting to do Seven westerns. So he called me and said, you know, why don't we do a a, a western? And we had a a story about about finding oil. And I said, what I'll do is just change that script to where we're no longer looking for oil, but we're in a western looking for water. The story is the same. The drama is the same. It'll work. So he went to CBS, and uh, CBS said, well, we've already sold those Westerns, but well, now we're looking for a historical period piece. And Frank reached in his briefcase and pulled out our old script and said, have we got a deal for you? So uh, that's how we got the first one done. And then he got involved with uh, uh, Larry Levinson, who was doing all the, uh, uh, the Gambler series. And we did the... Uh, a uh, two-part miniseries on Gambler 5 uh, with Kenny Rogers, Lonnie Anderson, and uh, Dixie Carter uh, for CBS. And uh, so so we did that mini that miniseries. Uh, it, film scripts are wonderful to write. There's a lot of money to be made on good film scripts, but you have to go out to California and, mm. and play the game. And uh, I've never been willing to go to Los Angeles. So, uh, a terrible terrible
0: place it. <laughs> It's a terrible place I'll t- I'm the first one to tell you that it,
2: really, <laughs> it really is I thought, I thought you might have a, a first name basis with L.A. Yeah,
0: I do And it's not a good name <laughs> uh, uh, do, you ever, do you ever look back um, At some of your earliest books And think that um, you'd like to rewrite them or, you know, it's quite often writers will say that they, uh, they dislike some of the earliest books or they're not good or they way they rewrote them or they could write them differently and stuff. I, I think that's probably something that's common amongst writers. What's your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's, it's, it's always common, but it's also kind of interesting to go back and look at the, the first book that I ever did, and the last book that I ever did, because the first books, I mean, I was overflowing with purple prose. I was trying to turn uh, narrative into poetry. I wanted people to uh, people to be able to, to see the color of the blossoms in the trees and, and smell the lilac bushes. And, and then as I've gone along, my writing has become a lot more spare a lot more sparse. Uh, in those days, I was trying to set a beautiful scene. Today, I'm trying to see what the characters do within that scene. Uh, and, 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 it's almost something I learned when, when I was writing film scripts. But when I wrote the first one, uh, I would set the scene in this Western town and I would tell everybody on, in, in, in the script where everything was. I would describe the saloon, describe the bank, describe the street scene, describe the corral, describe the uh, uh, mountains in the distance and the uh, the melting snow coming down in the crevasse and then the arroyos. And the producer said, Pirtle, just right. cut the street scene. The re- director will figure out how to set it. So now, when I go into a town, I explain the town to where you really understand the mood and the thoughts and the personality of the town, but I don't spend all that time on, on uh, descriptions. Because uh, well, one of the great writers once said, it's all right to uh, describe the bedroom, but don't furnish it. And so now I may write this, the, about the town, but I don't furnish
0: it. Hmm. If you were to look back then at, um, all of your books and someone has never, never read one of your books before, which one would you choose for them to, uh, to, to, to read that you, that would get a good flavor of, of who you are as a writer?
2: I think probably now, uh, I would ask them to, uh, read the first book in the Boomtown series because it's uh, probably my Ambrose uh, Lincoln books may be a little too spare. Uh, My Roland Sand books uh, series may be too introspective. And and I think with my Boomtown series, I have been able to to work my way through and, and, and be able to, to have introspective and a lot of internal dialogue uh, uh, and, and, and dialogue that really work well in those books that, that probably I would like to go back and change some, some of the scenes and, and Ambrose Lincoln and uh, Roland Sand. But uh, I'm writing new Roland Sand books and new Lincoln books, so I'll have an opportunity in the new books to try to make that transition. Uh, but because probably the most important thing in, in writing a novel these days is internal dialogue. In fact, I've often said, you, you hear people go to a movie and then you hear them read the book and they always say the book is better than the movie. And the reason is, in the book, You can tell what the point-of-view character is thinking. And in a movie, all you see is his reaction, his facial reactions. You never know what he's thinking.
1: Now, you you mentioned uh, your wife, and I see that she's also a writer. Uh, What's it like having two writers in the house, and uh, do you act as each other's first readers?
2: Well, Linda um, was an education Until she retired. Mm. She was a high school English teacher, then a high school principal, and spent her whole life in in, in education. Mm. And after she retired, she didn't have anything to do and wondered why I went into my office, closed the door, Mm. and had the best time of my life all alone surrounded by characters she couldn't see or hear. So I dared her to write a book. And she's the type of person. Don't dare her to do something. He will do it. And she always loved cozy mysteries. So Linda wrote her first cozy mystery, The Mahjong Murders, and it really sold like hotcakes. And so now she's written four cozy mysteries and uh, is working on her uh, fifth book. So she's really gotten into the writing. Now, the difference is I write every day. Hey, it's just part of breathing. If I didn't sit down and write, uh, I'm not sure what I would do. She writes on Wednesdays. Hmm. She finds that one day a week, and that's her writing day. It's Wednesday.
0: Well, don't get in her way on Wednesday.
2: Don't, get, don't even speak to her on Wednesday. In fact, <laughs> it's almost gotten to the point that, that we live together and email each other. And if it's important, she'll call me on the phone. <laughs> but, but very seldom we do our paths crawls within the house. Oh, it's better that way. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot better. The other thing is, now, and when we do sit down at the dinner table, we have something to talk about. Hmm. She can tell me what her characters are going to do, and I can tell her about what my characters are doing, and she can tell me what they're doing wrong, and most times she's right.
0: She's right even when she's wrong. Come on.
2: Mm-hmm. You got that. But uh, really, supposedly she's, she really has good points. And, and will, as an old English teacher, she doesn't tell you what's wrong. She makes you think until you figure out how you did it wrong and how she'd go back and redo it and make sure it's right.
0: Bet you she has a big ruler.
2: A <laughs> yeah, big ruler, and then I've got lots of knuckles. Yeah,
0: it's like that. I had that, you know. My my teacher back in the sixties would slap because I wrote with my left hand. That was a big no no back then, and so mm-hmm. she would always hit me with the ruler. Yeah, uh, and
2: it was acceptable. And you knew it was going to happen. Yeah, and you knew, and you just lived with it.
0: Exactly, because that's what you had to do.
2: <laughs> what other choice was there? <laughs> well. for me, The person who probably had the biggest influence on my life was my high school English teacher. She was the hardest English teacher that the good Lord ever put on this earth. When you wrote themes, if you had a comma blunder, a comma fault, a comma error, it was an automatic F from that point, and she never read the rest of of the theme. She called me in one day, And she said, all right, I'm reading your themes. Because I was trying to be a writer. I would write the one-word paragraph, the incomplete sentence, the impact sentence. And she said, okay, I know what you're trying to do. You want to be a writer. She said, you're not a very good writer. But I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. On your themes, you write it the way you want to write it. And if you'll put a little asterisk up that says this is wrong, I know it's wrong, but I did it anyway. She said, I won't count off. And she was the first one that really gave me the freedom to try to be a writer. And uh, I'm always indebted to her.
0: Boy, she'd probably have a stroke if she read social media.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank God she's no longer with us. Or she wouldn't be with us <laughs>
0: yeah, she wouldn't. they wouldn't like that, I'll tell you. Um, Now, okay, so uh, how do you like to interact with people? Do you have a website? Do you do social media? What's your favorite uh, interaction with
2: readers? You know, the wonderful thing is, is on the website you have the comments, and you have long strings and long threads of comments about your books and other books. And in the back of all my books, I put my email address and say, hey, if you like this book, I'd like to know about it. If you don't like this book, I'd love to know about it because what your thoughts are really helped me improve my writing in the future. And, and, and a lot of people will just write because they've never had an opportunity to, to talk with a used word salesman before. And uh, <laughs> so you, 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 you get to go and, 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 and learn from, from readers, which is one reason Linda and I, I speak at so many writers' conferences is you not only have writers, you have would be writers and you have readers, and this gives you an opportunity to sit around when nobody's on stage and drink coffee together and, and, and spill ideas together and, and find out what the reader thinks. You know, what do the what does the reader want? And and am I able to deliver what the reader wants? Because You're, you're, you're really torn these days between writing what you want to write, the stories you want to write and the stories that the uh, reader wants to read. And, and probably the biggest mistake I'm making right now is, is many of my books being thrillers and, and really, uh, mysteries. Uh, most books are read by women. And so much of what I write would probably be enjoyed more by men readers than women readers, which is why in the Boomtown series, my lead character is Eudora Durant. And she's one of these 1930s abusive uh, wives that woke up one day, and she's not going to take it anymore. And she's on a one-woman crusade. And and, and and she fights back every opportunity she has to, to to fight back, and 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 she has really struck a tone with a lot of women readers out there that says, "Yeah, that's the kind of character we like to know existed in 1931."
0: Wow, um, sounds like you met uh, Dave's wife. No, <laughs> <laughs> boy, I'm in trouble for that but, one. And, and it's it
2: <laughs> kind of interesting because. Uh, my, my original concept was to write Backside of a Blue Moon from the con man's point of view. Because from my days working on the police beat for the Star-Telegram, I always loved good con artists if they were really good con artists. And and so this was going to be a book about a flim-flam man. And he was in the first chapter. Second chapter, I wrote about Eudora Durant. And by the time I finished her chapter, I said, no. This is Eudora's story, and I put her on Chapter One, and the con man on Chapter Two, and Eudora has run off with the series. It's all about her now, and 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 she works well. Wow, she's probably modeled after my wife.
0: <laughs> to get that in, uh, well, um, it's certainly been a pleasure. You know, our time is is run out, and. Uh, we really appreciate. Uh, so our guest today is the writer, Caleb
2: the III. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for allowing me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Caleb.
1: Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie
2: Reviews.